Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Theranos is back. Not the company, but the blockbuster story of its failure, the tremendous scam pulled by its founder, Elizabeth Holmes, and the financial ecosystem that invested hundreds of millions of dollars in the company. A criminal fraud trial for Holmes begins this week, and we'll revisit whether she was a symptom of Silicon Valley culture or an exception. And then... College football season has begun, and the NFL gets going soon. Two respected sports writers join to help me decide if I can ethically keep watching football. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stanford dropout Elizabeth Holmes once claimed her startup Theranos would transform blood tests and modern medicine. At its peak in 2015, the company was valued at $9 billion, making Holmes the youngest self-made female billionaire in the world. But that all came crashing down when investigations revealed that the technology simply did not work. And now she faces criminal charges for defrauding investors and clients. Delayed by the pandemic, Holmes' trial is finally underway in San Jose. What questions or comments do you have about the Theranos scandal? Were you initially taken in by Elizabeth Holmes before her fall from stardom, like so many others? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Joining us to discuss what you need to know to follow along with the proceedings and hear how the controversy has shaken Silicon Valley and startup culture is Rachel Lerman, a technology reporter with The Washington Post. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. I know there have been, you know, 10 books, 17 documentaries and 300 podcasts about Theranos. But just as a quick refresher, what did Theranos do and what made Elizabeth Holmes such a well-known figure? Yeah, and soon to be a movie, it sounds like. Uh, So Theranos was designed to make a tiny laboratory, like in a box, basically, a portable laboratory. And the idea was that you could put in a finger prick of blood, so just a couple drops of blood, and run hundreds of tests just from that drop. Uh, The idea being it would make it cheaper and faster and less painful for people to get their blood tested and find, you know, important health results. But what happened was uh, the company grew and grew. It got a lot of prominent investors. It grew to 800 employees. And then the Wall Street Journal in 2015 published this kind of blockbuster investigation saying, you know, 
this technology doesn't really work. The scientists that work on this team are really concerned that so many of the results are inaccurate. So many of the tests that Theranos kind of claims that it's running on its own technology, it's actually running on traditional lab equipment. Some of the samples are getting diluted so much that the results are basically just useless and basically saying the whole thing is a sham. I mean, of course, now in the post-COVID world, we've all thought a lot about laboratory testing. I think one of the things that's surprising to me about the story, and always has been, was that the company was able to have so much acclaim and so much attention when the core technology, even at even if it did exactly what it said, was basically like replacing LabCorp or Quest, which are not in and of themselves <laughs> like the most interesting companies. Um, was it about Elizabeth Holmes' charisma or just, you know, her youth, um, particularly when she started the company? She was 19 years old. Like, what do you make of the magnetism of the story? So interesting. I think that a lot of things that come out of Silicon Valley, like we really just, we want to believe them, right? Because they sound great. Like we want these things to kind of change the way that we go about our daily lives. And so I think part of it is just like, is uh, optimism, you know, like we Mm -hmm. want these things to be real. But yes, I absolutely think that Elizabeth Holmes is part of this. She started the company when she was 19 years old at Stanford. She's very charismatic and confident and Uh, you know, it's rare to have a young female successful CEO uh, reach this level of prominence in Silicon Valley. And so I think people wanted her to be kind of like a hero, an idol, uh, a role model for other young women who were interested in the sciences. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other thing that seems to have drawn so much attention to the company was how connected Holmes, you know, both began, you know, through her family, but also uh, that she became, you know, being able to draw the support from people like, you know, generals and like Henry Kissinger. How how did that happen? <laughs> it's a great question. I mean, you're right. She was connected, right? She had family connections. She went to Stanford. She was like in many ways kind of this, you know, she was part she was already part of the culture of Silicon Valley. But yeah, I mean, she she managed to bring in uh, Rupert Murdoch and Henry Kissinger, Jim Mattis. Like she had she clearly had uh, she had a way to kind of attract these very prominent and powerful people. And that was, you, you know, this is an interesting part of the story, I think, because many people in Silicon Valley will say, well, you know, but she didn't, she didn't draw in like traditional investors. She didn't draw in many traditional venture capitalists. Like they took a look at the company and and they passed. And, and in some cases that is, that is true. Like a lot of her a lot of her supporters were were outside Silicon Valley, outside the medical field. But she still, you know, she brought in a lot of very powerful people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think um, her investors are sort of one thing. The people who actually worked with her company, I mean, I think one of the most fascinating aspects of this story is that she was able to sign up Walgreens in part because it seemed as if they wanted a little piece of that Silicon Valley sheen to stick over the top of this, you know, pretty boring retail pharmacy business. Absolutely. And the reports about Walgreens and the Theranos deal are basically that, you know, it doesn't seem like they did a good enough job vetting the technology. She was apparently doing, uh, uh, you know, like uh, kind of tests for them, but not really showing them the inner workings of the technology. And so they kind of got brought in, as did many others, into this idea that the technology was going to be life-changing and business-changing for them. And in fact, you know, they rolled it out in many stores and had already started using it. Safeway as well were were in talks to, you know, complete a deal with Theranos. 
So um, let's talk about this trial specifically. Um, who stands to win here? Like what's actually at stake in this specific trial? So it's a criminal trial. She's charged with 10 counts of wire fraud and two counts of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. So basically, you know, the U.S. government is saying you committed these illegal acts. She could go to prison for up to 20 years if she is convicted. Uh, I think one of the most fascinating parts of the cases is that we're really getting kind of an inside look into one of these stealthy and secretive Silicon Valley startups, which happens so rarely. Mm. And has anything slipped that's particularly caught your eye so far? One of the things that I found really interesting so far is in a lot of the pre-trial back and forth, there was uh, it was un- it was revealed that there was apparently some database that held millions of test results, you know, either internal test results or results that they had done on patients uh, that w- would have given like. C- a statistical view of how well the technology was working. Theranos handed it over to the government as part of discovery, it it seems, uh, and then shut down the servers that were holding it, thereby kind of deleting the database. Well, so the government had a copy, but they realized too late that they needed a second password to be able to access it. So all that data is lost. No. So they basically, they, they gave them a link and then got rid of the site that it was, that link was connecting to. The government lost its sort of two-factor authentication, like you could lose access to your Gmail account. And so now we don't actually have access to that information anymore and the government can't force them to provide it. Yep, that's right, because it doesn't really exist anymore. And there's squabbling back and forth about the exact timeline of what happened. But but the end result is that we don't have that view. Like, it's it's basically impossible to reconstruct it. Oh, my gosh. All right. I want to bring in Laurel from Sacramento uh, into our conversation. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. This is a really interesting story that I've been following for many years. Um, I'm a young woman. I'm a millennial, and my undergraduate degree is in economics with a focus on gender studies, and then I also have an MBA from the University of California at Davis. And something that I found really disappointing in this entire story is that it's already so difficult for women in particular to secure um, venture capital deals and that there are so few women who really have the kind of profile that she had managed to secure, uh, particularly in the realm of sciences. And so in many ways, this, this felt very personal to not only watch her downfall, but also just to see that she had um, behaved in such an uncouth manner and that it really, in many ways, it felt like a big setback. So that was really disappointing as a feminist, as a woman who really believes that we need to encourage more women to go into both sciences as well as um startups and being successful in securing venture capital. Have you had investors or prospective, you know, colleagues reference Elizabeth Holmes? Or you think this is just one of those things that sort of uh, reinforce some of the pre-existing biases that some of those folks might have had? A little bit of both. Um, some of the work that I've done has been in consulting startups in the Silicon Valley and how to um, pitch, you know, for their, their businesses, especially in seed rounds and then round A and round B. And so this has been brought up and particularly within the context of, you know, women saying, you know, I'm not entirely sure how I should come across. Should I be more aggressive? Um, And that these conversations did happen, which was that it seemed like some of the women who were successful in securing venture capital, such as Elizabeth Holmes, um, really took a much more, um, I guess, I don't want to say traditionally masculine, but in many ways it was that um, approach and that that seemed to be the only way that was successful. And ultimately, because of her, you know, 
unethical and dishonest behavior, it really kind of rocks back a lot of younger women on, well, what, what exactly is it that I do to be um, successful in moving my business and my ideas forward? And so there were both the conversations that I had with young women in the Silicon Valley, as well as just the general profile of um, what it means to be a woman, in, particularly in male-dominated industries, and that this really, in many ways, I viewed as, as a big setback. Thank you for that, Laurel. Rachel Lerman, technology reporter with The Washington Post. You know, I feel like her story, Elizabeth Holmes' story, that is, um, not Laurel's, uh, is also twin to sort of Adam Newman, uh, the CEO of WeWork, who was sort of uh, similar, similarly grandiose in, uh, in his claims and yet doesn't seem to have set back uh, male technology entrepreneurs. Has this, the culture around these kinds of claims changed, do you think, as a result of the, the series of uh, companies and entrepreneurs who uh, have have made these sorts of uh, moves and then failed to deliver? You know, I think that there was some initial kind of reflecting and conversation in Silicon Valley after after the Theranos collapse around, you know, this kind of fake it till you make it attitude, this uh, overconfidence, this kind of like selling the vision of what could be rather than what is. But I, I think that many other examples in the years since show us that there hasn't been major change in this way. Like we still expect sort of this idea of this genius or visionary founder who's going to like give you the world and change the way that we do things. And that's still largely celebrated. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, yeah, that's really been continuing. We're digging into the Theranos scandal as CEO Elizabeth Holmes' trial begins this week in San Jose. We've been talking with Rachel Lerman, technology reporter at The Washington Post, and we want to hear from you. What do you think the story and trial says about Silicon Valley culture? Was she an exception or a distillation? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're digging into the Theranos scandal. Uh, CEO Elizabeth Holmes' trial begins this week. We have Rachel Lerman, technology reporter at The Washington Post, and we're now joined by Rebecca Jarvis. She's the host of The Dropout Podcast and ABC News chief business technology and economics correspondent. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Hi, Alexis. Thanks for having me. So tell us about the trial as you see it, having done all this reporting for your podcast and sort of what the Elizabeth Holmes defense may be. Well, we got this 11th hour bombshell a couple of days ago that really lets us in on what her defense attorneys really plan to hone in on. And that is this defense, this idea that Elizabeth Holmes was under the psychological control given sexual, physical abuse from her now ex-boyfriend, former COO, Sonny Belwani, throughout her time while he was there at the company for a decade. And this question, by the way, Sonny Belwani emphatically denies and categorically denies those claims. But this is really the question that will be before the jurors. Are they to believe that Elizabeth Holmes was acting of her own volition, making decisions about the blood testing technology company, which she founded after dropping out of Stanford at 19 years old, or was she essentially being controlled by Sonny Mm -hmm. Belwani? 
What do we know about Sonny Bowani and his relationship with Elizabeth Holmes? Well, we know it started long before they ever had a, an intimate romantic relationship and long before he joined Theranos in 2009. So if you go back, Elizabeth Holmes studied Mandarin in China, and that's when they met. Um, basically around 2002, they were in this program together. She, according to Sonny's deposition testimony with the SEC, really stood out in his mind. She was the number one person in that class. She was about 18 years old at the time. He was 37 at the time. Mm -hmm. And so there was a big age difference. There still is a big age difference. It, it doesn't change. <laughs> um, but the reality is they picked up this more romantic, intimate relationship. And at in 2009, the height of the financial crisis, most companies are either going out of business, struggling to get loans. Sonny Belwani, who was an entrepreneur before Theranos and made a considerable amount of money by selling one of his companies, gives a lifeline loan, $13 million to Theranos on good faith. And then shortly after that, he's hired by the company as the COO. Now, again, he's got tech background, but he doesn't have medical background. So there's big questions about how can you be the COO of this supposedly healthcare technology company when your background is really more in tech? Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, to an outsider to this, it's obviously kind of icky. For sure. Yeah. Uh, but is that a is that a likely defense from people that you've talked to to actually succeed that there was this sort of, you know, much older man who also did exert some financial control, at least in the uh, early days when he came onto the company? So I've talked to a number of legal experts about this, and it is a tricky defense with jurors, especially given this span of time. And one of the things that really opens the door to is the Elizabeth Holmes before Sunny came on board at the company. She started this back in the early 2000s as a dropout from Stanford University. And there's a history there. We, we talk through the history in the podcast. She treated employees... Um, according to them, she, she lied to employees back long before Sunny came on board. She said things to the press. She did an article with NPR that grossly exaggerated the actual things that her technology could do at the time. So there's this track record that's now open to the government's case that you can look back at the Elizabeth Holmes before Sonny Belwani ever came on board. And there's certain behaviors that she's now being accused of for fraud that she was exhibiting before he entered the picture. It also opens the door to looking at her life after Sonny and after Theranos, which if anyone's been following the reporting, she's essentially been living life uh, on the surface to its fullest. She's in a new relationship. She has a baby that was born about a month ago. So jurors are gonna have to ask this question, if, this, if these claims are very, very serious, would someone be able to bounce back that quickly? So in, in previous uh, legal proceedings the, around Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, she already had a civil fraud trial, right, like through, through the SEC. Did these kinds of defenses come up in the past already, or is this sort of a, a you know, described as a bombshell? Is this a new thing that we're hearing about? This is new. Um, she, she, with the SEC... And with previous civil suits, many of those have been settled without admitting any wrongdoing. Um, and, and another point that you raise here that I think is sort of an interesting aspect in all of this, there have been a lot of suits where she has either um, not been able to pay her attorney's fees or 
where she's claimed that she can't afford to pay back investors. So a number of investors brought civil suits against Theranos. There was no money left when the company dissolved. She claimed to not have money to pay them back, according to the attorneys. Well, now she's looking at, given who she's hired, Williams and Connolly, nine Williams and Connolly attorneys and one additional attorney, that's like an eight-figure defense. So there are real questions about where's the money coming from that's going to be paying for these attorney fees. Uh, one possibility might be that there was a, a liability policy at Theranos and that it's all just being covered by insurance. But some have raised questions about who might be bankrolling this defense mm-hmm. on behalf of Elizabeth Holmes. Mm-hmm. Last question before we let you go. Um, what, what else should we be looking for in this trial, aside from just a sort of morbid, looky-loo curiosity of, of this story? Well, I think you know, you're you're coming to me, we're having this conversation, you're in Silicon Valley, you're in the Bay Area, there's real precedent that's going to come out of this. And I've talked to a lot of people, founders, venture capitalists, journalists, if there is, if she walks away from this case, fully scot-free, given still that there are these stunning allegations on the sidelines, walking away, what kind of signal does that send to other founders and other venture capitalists about the companies that they are creating or have created right now? It could fundamentally be a really bad outcome to suggest that if your thing isn't 100% and it's it's a technology that's used in healthcare settings, patients and doctors, according to these allegations, were misled, it would send according to a number of people I've spoken to in, in the world of venture and, and, and tech and healthcare, it would just send a really troubling signal. That was Rebecca Jarvis, host of The Dropout Podcast. She's also ABC News Chief Business Technology and Economics Correspondent. And that podcast is out now. It's called The Dropout, Elizabeth Holmes on Trial. Thank you so much for joining us, Rebecca. Thanks, Alexis. And we do want to hear from you. We've got a bunch of calls we're going to try and get to. And I'm really curious if you think we've, and by we, I mean the media generally, have actually put too much emphasis on this story. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. And just also letting you know, we're still joined by Rachel Lerman, technology reporter at The Washington Post, to help us pull this story apart. A couple reader uh, comments here. Matthew writes, Blame Stanford. Matthew writes, the Stanford Design School encapsulates the ethos of Silicon Valley in the emphasis on producing a minimally viable product or proof of concept. How did Theranos prove that their method actually worked? And why didn't the FDA or other controlling authority vet the data from early trials? Were all the data faked from day one? Did it even work a little bit? Um, Rachel Lerman, did it even work a little bit? Yes. Uh, the idea is that, yes, we think it actually did work a little bit. It seems that, you know, it could run a few limited tests on its own technology, but it's a little bit unclear how how accurate those test results were, how much of the time. But, you know, I mean, this concept is true, right? Like startups in general have to build out their product. They obviously need to get money before they complete their their product. Uh, They're often raising money before they have a fully functioning and working system. The point is, though, when does it need to start working? And this one was being used on live patients when it apparently was not working as advertised. Let's bring in DP from San Francisco into the conversation. Hi, um, thanks for having me. 
I just wanted to react to um, the story as well as uh, Laurel, I think it called earlier, around mm-hmm. being an early millennial and how it affects women in tech and, you know, CEOs and startups and, and that culture. And I'm an older millennial. <laughs> um, and I, just I think we're called say, geriatric millennials, DP. I think that's the proper term. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'll take it. Um, I think the point here is, you know, I am, uh, just to give you an example of a, a different story, like I'm in a startup. I'm the head of product at the startup. I have a four-year-old. My CEO and co-founder is a, um, a woman. She has a child, right? So there are other stories in Silicon Valley and the startup culture around women that are, you know, coming forward. And, you know, as much as this story is detrimental to, the, to, the, um, to our sort of overall trying to get women forward, right? Um, I've been uh, working for gender equity in the workplace for a long time as well. Um, it's about, like, what stories the media elevates also. I would put it to Rachel and other sort of tech writers and tech reporters around sort of, you know, if you only elevate the Elizabeth Holm negative story or sort of give it a lot of attention, but not also elevate the stories of women who are in the Silicon Valley doing it sort of, you know, going um, against the grain to a larger degree. I think that's also an important piece of Silicon Valley that isn't sort of talked about and it gives, right, doesn't give a full picture that it's not as terrible. I mean, it's really hard. I don't want to mitigate it, but... We are trying to, like, make a difference, and some of us are making a difference and have well, been for a long time. Yeah, thank yeah. you for that, DP. I appreciate it. Let me, let me actually put the question that you posed to Rachel Lerman, and I think I'd phrase it this way, which is the media kind of played this on both sides, and I, and I, don't, I don't leave myself or KQED out of this either, right? There was this story of providing tons of attention to this one person, Elizabeth Holmes, and then riding her, her fame up and then also riding her infamy down. Do you, what do you think this says about how we need to cover Silicon Valley differently? I totally hear that. I think that Elizabeth Holmes was like the story that we all wanted to hear. She was like a young woman. She was leading a science company. She was inspirational, right? She was confident and, and cool. And I think that the media gave her a lot of attention because of a lot of those things. And then I think also, you know, when when the collapse came, we jumped on that as well. Um, I, I, I agree with you. Like, I think that there are so many stories out there that need to and should be told. And I think taking a holistic look at what is happening in Silicon Valley is incredibly important because there are, of course, so many great women doing like amazing things in this area and supporting each other and helping each other up. And those stories should also be told. And it's 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 funny how, you know, as as an industry, we do tend to focus on like these kind of bigger bombastic personalities. And I get why, like they're relatable and they're interesting, but there's a lot, there's a lot of other stories out there. A mm-hmm. um, couple comments before we go back to calls. Kim writes, granted there were many deficiencies with the development and safety of this company, but everyone commenting is extremely naive when it comes to medical device developments and investments. There are many, many devices on the market that are not ideal and have safety issues, yet we continue to use and develop them in healthcare. There is a lot of drama around home simply because she is a woman who developed a company in Silicon Valley. She could not get a fair trial on Mars at this point. Worth noting, too, that there's sort of different regulatory pathways for medical devices relative to uh, drugs that 
people in jest for various reasons. Uh, Brendan also writes, We have so many black and brown brothers and sisters locked away for far less damaging and destructive behavior, which is directly symptomatic of our broken societal structure, which is dependent on perpetual inequity. Are we as a society again going to give this white woman a pass because we feel more empathetic that her actions were mere symptoms of the worst part of Silicon Valley culture? Oftentimes, these white-collar crimes are most destructive, and we must hold any and all these people accountable for their actions. No passes for white-collar crime. Gina in Sacramento, welcome to the show. Hello? Hi, Gina. Welcome. Hi. Um, I just mostly have a comment. And um, I was my comment is that I think that Elizabeth Holmes should be prosecuted, I guess, to the full extent of the law <laughs> for exaggerating her company's successes and profitability. And I also um, don't think that her case should be conflated with the immoral and um, specious behavior of other tech companies, such as Adam Newman at WeWork, because she was the leader of a biotech company. Um, as such, when she lies or exaggerates about her company's successes, she can have a direct impact on people's medical health. And perhaps those erroneous decisions that can arise can lead to people's deaths. Um, people were like literally receiving test results that their doctors were using to diagnose them with specific diseases and prescribing medicines. So her actions was not just like swindling investors um, when it's people's lives at stake. Um, and I'm not saying, excuse me, I'm not saying that investor money or um, possibly the retirement money of um, people are uh, unimportant, but a fraudulent biotech company has the potential to be so much worse than the harm that a tech company can do. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, I, point I point that. taken, Gina. I think that is a good perspective on this. Michelle uh, in San Rafael, welcome. Hi. Um, I, uh, I, I'm not really commenting on Elizabeth Holmes' defense. I mean, on her, I should say, on her guilt sure. or innocence. I, I don't think that she is um, innocent, and I'm glad she's being prosecuted. But I, I want to comment on the defense. Um, I thought it, when I heard that the, the defense she was using, I thought, oh, that's interesting in light of the Me Too movement. I wonder if that will make her def- make make a uh, her defense be more likely to be successful. Then I heard Rachel's comment, which I was quite surprised by, saying that uh, Elizabeth is living her best life now. She's in a relationship. She just had a child. So. Could she be, you know, could this have been as bad as she's saying? Could she really be damaged by this abuse from this um, ex-boyfriend because she's apparently happy now? And I was shocked by that comment. Um, I I don't even know what to say about it. I I just find it so offensive that uh, you you are going to question uh, anyone's, the, the veracity of what they're saying about abuse they suffered based on the fact that they're doing okay now. Michelle, I appreciate that perspective. Rachel, I... Was that you? I wasn't sure. Um, I want to give you a chance. No, it wasn't. But yeah. but I but I hear your point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was that was our our other guest. I do. I and I and I want to give you Rachel maybe a, a chance to to talk about this as well though because I do think it is an important point that you know this is someone who is a become a reviled figure in our culture, but that does not say that she cannot have been abused, right? Um, Rachel, any anything yeah. you want to add on that? Absolutely. I think that also, you know, one of the interesting things in this trial is going to be that we're going to get more, more information about this, about this story, about this case, about this company, about Holmes herself. And I think that, you know, she'll, 
she'll be able to present her defense. And from what we can tell from the court documents, of course, uh, some of this is still unclear to us, but from what we can tell, she's at least in part going to say, you know, that she was made incapable of making her own decisions by this alleged abuse that she suffered from her ex-boyfriend. We're running out of time, but I still want to give Christina from San Francisco a chance to go quickly. <laughs> yeah, um, such great comments on here. I really appreciate the conversation. And I would add that one um, analysis or conversation I feel really hungry for is sort of an exploration of what the reception of the story and what the amplification of certain elements from it um, kind of says about about us and our sort of collective zeal for the downfall of a, of a woman of this stature, um, totally apart from guilt or innocence, as, as some, some other callers have said, but um, just kind of comparing it to how we might receive a similar story about a man in tech and, uh, and, and what, that, what questions that kind of begs us to ask about, um, you know, why, why is the collapse of somebody like this a story that that we are also so seem to be so hungry for and, you know, want movie depictions of um, and, and what that also has to do with our, um, you know, kind of kind of lingering and prevailing ideas and fears about femininity. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Christina. I think that is good food for thought and a good thing to keep in mind as we head into this trial. We've been talking about the Theranos scandal with Rachel Lerman, technology reporter with The Washington Post. Thank you so much for coming on, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. And we spoke earlier with Rebecca Jarvis. She's the host of The Dropout Podcast and ABC News Chief Business Technology and Economics Correspondent. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.